Join me, Bob Morris, on topics about desert horticulture. This week, we will be discussing, is a fertilizer injector worth installing in a desert landscape? Should you replace dirt in containers if you were using compost to amend it? What is the real difference between garden soil and potting soil? Does a Santa Rosa plum require a pollinizer tree? Join me on this and other topics in Desert Horticulture. Learn more about Desert Horticulture by signing up for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, Extreme Horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on Eventbrite if you're in the Las Vegas area. That's Bob Morris on Eventbrite. Let's get uh, right into it because the first topic was a little bit difficult uh, for me because uh, we just got in, done installing some fertilizer injectors <clears throat> Excuse me, in, in uh, the orchard that I'm working at right now. It's a large orchard, commercial orchard in the Las Vegas area, not about a mile and a half from the Strip. And um, when uh, we were first talking about fertilizing these fruit trees, it's about three, about 3,000 fruit trees and about 300 grapes. When we were first talking about uh, these fruit trees and first installing them, we were talking about fertilizing them and how to fertilize them. And uh, I originally thought we could do it by hand, but there's just so many trees. And uh, it really is labor-intensive to, to do it. Uh, and besides that, the, uh, the number of people working there, it, it really, they're, they're stretched a little bit thin when it comes to uh, doing a lot of things around the orchard. So, um, I was familiar with the Easy Flow injectors, and they're, you know, when I went to school and college, the, those were not considered uh, injectors. Injectors or proportioners were pretty expensive, hundreds of dollars, for these machines, and they were extremely accurate in uh, putting in exactly the amount of fertilizer, or it could be a pesticide, into the water. And it was precisely given to the plants because these people that were buying these, these commercial growers, wanted the plants to be all the same. So it was very important that these plants receive exactly the, the same amount of water, the same amount of fertilizer, so that they grew consistently. Well, the fertilizer injectors, there's several of them out there. Uh, Easy Flow is one example, and it's quite popular in the Las Vegas area with uh, some of the landscape people. These, these are really... Um, these aren't really, in my opinion, fertilizer injectors, although they're called that now, or proportioners, they're not injectors. They, they rely on sucking a, a fertilizer solution out of a plastic tank. And uh, then this water is, fertilizer water is sucked into, diluted fertilizer is sucked into the irrigation line and it's distributed to the plants. So this person uh, sent me a question. He said, I recently installed an underground fertilizer injector and I was told to discontinue fertilizing by hand. Uh, does this injector replace fertilizing plants by hand 
Is it beneficial as a supplement? If so, how often should it be used? These are difficult questions because, in 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 my opinion, um, fertilizer injectors, true injectors, are pretty much a commercial operation used in commercial operations, orchards and agriculture, greenhouses, hydroponics, uh, growing pot plants, uh, marijuana, uh, where they they need a precise control of the amount of fertilizer that's applied to plants. You want to do that because when fertilizer is applied to plants through the in, through an injection system of some sort, um, you can usually because it's 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 metered out in such small quantities, uh, you can use a significant um, significantly less fertilizer than applying it by hand. When you apply it by hand, typically I've gone ahead and just done a handful and thrown it at the base of plants, either broadcasted or put it uh, fairly close to the base of plants and then watered it in, let the irrigation water bring it in. But that, uh, getting it and putting the fertilizer in a bucket or a container, taking it into the field and fertilizing it by hand is quite labor intensive. So uh, I acquiesced on that one and I agreed. I said, maybe we need to take a closer look at uh, these types, these lesser expensive type of injectors. So uh, we did install uh, about 20 of these injectors um, into the orchard, and it does save a lot of labor. Uh, all you have to do is mix the fertilizer, you know, water-soluble fertilizer, in the water, put it in the tank, and then you have a dial, and it will meter out the water somewhat, meters out the water, somewhat accurately out to the plants, and you can see a big difference. The tendency is to over-fertilize when you first start using it. And later on, people do complain that it's quite expensive. By the time you buy the fertilizer that's recommended by the manufacturer, and then many times people don't want to have to, be, to, have to face uh, the, the putting this solution into the tank and then dealing with uh, any repair problems and whatnot that might come from it. So they'll pay a price for someone to come in and do that. And that can be quite steep. So when you're looking at fertilizing the plants, it can run into a little bit of money. So um, these tanks, these fertilizer tanks, you can take them out of the ground, unscrew the cap, put a fertilizer solution in it, and uh, the fertilizer solution, the, the amount of water in and fertilizer combined is dictated by the bag itself. And you don't need to use the fertilizer, even though the manufacturer tells you that the, their fertilizer has less salt in it or it has some, it's usually pretty bogus information. It's You can usually get a very comparable fertilizer uh, just if you start shopping around and, and using it. In fact, I did a little test uh, from the manufacturer. They made some claims on it, and I compared it with another water-soluble fertilizer that was quite quite a bit less expensive, and it was virtually the same fertilizer. And the numbers were a little bit different on the bag, but it came from the same fertilizer plant in Georgia and and whatnot. They the company, the manufacturer had actually put a dye into the into the fertilizer or had it made that way so that 
it looked differently when you opened the bag up. It was a brown material rather than a blue material. Uh, anyway, so you put a certain amount of fertilizer in this tank, and you can buy them in different sizes. And then the it's screwed back on, and there's some tubes that go into it and suck this fertilizer water solution out. And as the water in the irrigation line uh, flows down the pipe, it sucks this water, this irrigation, this fertilizer water behind it in a what's called a venturi effect so it as the water flows through the through the pipe that causes a vacuum and that vacuum pulls the fertilizer solution into into the line so when the fertilizer uh, it's not precise this particular type of a system the inexpensive ones are not terribly precise they have a, a dial that says a certain amount uh, fertilizer, high, medium, and low, basically, and uh, it does run out, can run out fairly quickly. The other problem that I saw with it is uh, there is a tendency to over-fertilize. So at the orchard, for instance, I don't like to apply fertilizer late in the season on anything that's tender or really on fruit trees in general. It's okay on vegetables because you're nursing them along. You know, you're you're constantly feeding them. But when it comes to fruit trees, you want them to go to sleep for the winter. So you want them to, and also some of the, if it's citrus in the Las Vegas Valley, the citrus can be um, can be a little bit on the uh, sensitive side towards freezing temperatures. So you, you don't want to give them any late nitrogen fertilizers, fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer late in the season, because that can affect their ability to withstand cold. Uh, and if they're succulent going into the winter, they can be fairly easily damaged. So anyway, uh, I, I have a mixed feelings about it. It is labor intensive, but for home landscapes, I, I question it a little bit because it just depends on really how you're using the fertilizer in, injector, if you want to call it that. Uh, if you're just using it because you don't want to have to bother with it, and out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing, uh, it's fine. It will do the job for you. But if you're a serious gardener, if you're a serious uh, horticulturist, uh, I have two responses on that. One is you could use it for a baseline. In other words, you could inject everything with a, a basic fertilizer and then come back and those specialized plants, those plants that are really special to you, you can do something different. You can either fertilize them by hand or you can foliar feed them or do something with it uh, that's one approach or you can just ignore the whole thing and just fertilize everything by hand landscapes aren't that big anyway typically aren't that big so fertilizing by hand is not a big problem because when you're dealing with a mixed landscape it just depends on on how uh, and how uh, particular you are about your plants if different plants require different types of fertilizer and they require fertilizing at different times, applying fertilizer, applying it at different times of the year. So, for instance, uh, if you are just fertilizing trees and shrubs, they typically get fertilized once in the spring and it's done. You don't want a lot of extra growth on them. Fruit trees are about in the same category. But when you're dealing with things like roses or... Uh, high-maintenance items, uh, vegetable gardens, uh, uh, specialty plants, iris beds, those kind of things, 
you're going to want to fertilize them by hand and fertilizer injectors don't work because also as plants uh, are flowering and are preparing to flower they need a special high phosphorus fertilizer if they're just putting on leaf growth and stem growth then you can get by with a high nitrogen fertilizer lawns typically high nitrogen low phosphorus and moderate to high amounts of potassium on it so injectors work really good for lawns for as an example but uh, it's still good to be able to manipulate plants by applying fertilizer when they need it and when another thing that you can look at too I talk to people about this is, is looking at the plants and, and letting them basically tell you if they need fertilizer or not uh, in pruning recently on some fruit trees there were some real long excessive amounts of growth and that's because it was fertilized those fruit trees were fertilized three times during the year uh, early mid and late and they just got too much nitrogen so that nitrogen was just pushing a lot of excessive growth and when you have a lot of excessive growth means you've got to prune a lot and what do you do with the prunings well <laughs> they're they're not going into fruit that's for sure uh, so anyway it's it, I do have uh, mixed feelings about it but in generally I, I would say if you're the type of person that's out of sight, out of mind, and you don't want to bother with it, fine. The injectors work great, but expect to pay a little bit of money for after they're installed. The, the, unless you learn how to do it yourself, the, the fertilizer, it's probably a break-even. So if you buy the fertilizer, a specialty fertilizer, and you put it in an injector versus hand-applying it, there's a lot of waste when you hand-apply. It's probably break-even. Use less fertilizer in an injector but uh, you also will pay a little bit more money for that fertilizer. The second question, does the dirt used for container plants have to be replaced if you keep fertilizing or adding compost to it? Well, first of all, I don't like the word dirt very much. I've been around soil scientists too long, and they prefer the word soil, as we do in horticulture as well. So let's call it soil and not call it dirt. But uh, container soils will need to be replaced. The, you look at a, a limited volume of soil in a container, whereas plant roots can spread into large areas. Here you're looking at a very, very limited amount of soil. So the roots don't have a, a lot of places to go and a lot of places to put, pick up uh, fertilizer nutrients from. So when you have them in a container, it's important uh, if you're just fertilizing with a mineral fertilizer, conventional fertilizer, it's probably good to pull those plants out of the container, wash that soil off, do a little bit of trimming of the roots, cutting them back a little bit, uh, taking care of that, and then replanting them with a fresh soil about every two or three years. That's when the soil is going to get depleted with it. If you're using compost and you're adding that to the container mix, you'll probably get a few extra years out of it. But the problem is going to be uh, a depletion of minerals and nutrients in that soil. And when that happens, uh, the only way to really know which nutrient is going to be in short supply, uh, even if you're adding compost, is to send it off to a soil analysis somewhere in a soil testing laboratory. That's going to run you probably 70 to to $100 to have that soil test done, and it's a lot cheaper just to buy some new potting soil or mix it yourself and then add it to it. So I would say 
probably even if you're adding compost to those container soils, you probably should change out that soil about every four or five years anyway. So in fertilizers, if you're using fertilizers every two or three years, you should be changing the soil because the organic content of that soil is going to diminish quite rapidly. Or if you're adding compost to it as a soil amendment, then you could maybe get four or five years. But generally figure, feel, figure that you're going to have to replace it at one time. Now that gets on a sidelight here with a term called rock dust. And I was a little bit, um, I was always of the opinion that um, plants need about 16 or 17 essential elements. And they call them essential because uh, if you don't give it to them, the plants will die. Uh, some, at some point, they'll end up croaking. So they call them essential nutrients. And those essential nutrients are, can be depleted. So as an example, uh, the soil... If you're in an orchard situation and you've got you've got one of the one of the uh, nutrients that's pulled a lot from the soil and used in a lot of plant tissue is calcium, and we have a lot of calcium in our soils in our desert soils because in the Las Vegas Valley a lot of those desert soils originate uh, from uh, marine water former marine water so there's a lot of lime and free lime in it. But if you've got a plant growing in the same location, let's say an apple tree or a pear tree, growing in that same location for 10 years, it's going to be mining uh, a lot of those nutrients. And the nutrients that it's going to be mining the most are those that they use in large amounts. That's calcium, magnesium, uh, sulfur, uh, for the most part, are going to be really mined quite heavily. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, that's usually added in most fertilizers. But when you talk about calcium, magnesium, and sulfur, those are considered macronutrients, and they're used a lot. And if that mineral, if those soils don't release, don't break down fast enough to release some of those macronutrients, you can run into a deficiency. That can happen. That's why we get some disorders on apple and pear called uh, corky spot and bitter pit uh, because of calcium deficiency in that soil because that soil can't release that calcium fast enough. It's there. There's plenty of lime there. It just can't release it. You'll see it on golf courses sometimes too. And they'll go ahead and lime golf courses even in the desert just to add that calcium to that soil uh, back again. So the purpose of the rock dust and there's a big discussion right now about rock dust and the importance of it and whatnot. But rock dust, the, the, reason, the, the, the reasoning behind the use of rock dust is that a soil amendment is to supply some of these minor elements, some of these other elements that might be in short supply after years of cropping and cropping and cropping in a soil and depleting that soil of nutrients. So the rock dust is supposed to contain... 75 to 100 different elements in it and you apply it down and you basically use a shotgun approach and you apply everything and let the plant take up what it needs. It's not, uh, a t if, if you look at the soil chemistry side of things, it doesn't quite make sense, but in, it makes sense if you don't think about it, <laughs> if, you, if, if you don't think about it too strongly. So the next question is, so I don't know if I even answered that question or not. Does the dirt 
used for container plants that replace. So yeah, if you're using conventional fertilizers, mineral fertilizers, every two or three years, if you're using compost every four or five, but you still should be replacing that soil uh, on it. Well, what's the real difference between garden soil and potting soil, and can they be used in place of each other? And the simple answer is no. Potting soils are designed uh, to be light in weight, to drain water easily from plant roots, and also to hold soil at the same time, to act a little bit like a sponge. Garden soils are typically very high in microbial activity. They have a, a good garden soil will be very high in a microorganism count, a lot of bacteria and fungi in that soil, a lot of macro, a lot of different types of animal life in that soil that are important for a number of reasons. Potting soils typically are usually sterile. They're sterile because that type of medium is often used for propagation of plants or in planting new plants and you want a soil mix or some sort of a medium that is not going to present a disease problem to these plants. So potting soils typically are sterile. They're, they don't have a lot of life in them. If you get into some of the more expensive potting soils, one being like Fox Farm, for instance, which is, makes a very good line of products, but uh, the complaint I hear from people on potting soils from Fox Farm is, uh, is the fungus gnats. And they are probably using some sort of ingredient that is not sterilized. So uh, you, you'll go ahead and they'll repot an interior plant and then they'll have these fungus gnats starting to either feed on the roots, which they can do, or they'll start to fly into the air in office spaces and whatnot. And that's a little disconcerting at times. So the recommendation I have for you is if you do buy an expensive potting soil, that you fear might have some uh, fungus gnats in them or something, let me go ahead and dump it out of its plastic bag, put it in a clear plastic bag, and stick it in the sun for a day or two and let it cook. If those temperatures get up for to around 150, 160 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, everything, a lot of the, a lot of the organisms inside that potting soil will die, including the fungus gnat larvae as, uh, and many of the microorganisms as well. If you don't let it get up to 160 degrees for 30 minutes, you'll, you'll preserve them. And I would imagine that 140 degrees, 145 might be enough. Uh, if it's there for 15, 20 minutes, might be enough to kill them as well without harming a lot of the microorganisms. But you'll have to play with that. I know in composting, what they usually do is uh, it'll become very, very hot in the compost and it'll be hot enough to kill the microorganisms so they'll turn it and that way they'll introduce uh, compost that's cooler on the outside that has had a chance to build up its microorganism content and re reinfest that uh, compost again by just turning it over and over and building that microbial content in the soil. But anyway, with that, uh, I, I think that's, uh, I think, uh, 
I think the most of the potting soils, lesser expensive potting soils, though you won't have a problem. They're pretty sterile. The last question I had sent to me was uh, this individual was planting a Santa Rosa plum, and she read my blog that was one of the best for the Las Vegas Valley. I don't know if I said that so much as I said that uh, it is a really good pollinizer. It, the problem is, is with uh, the younger people coming up now want firmer fruit, and, and there's a real difference between those people who like soft fruit and those people who like firm fruit. And Santa Rosa plum is really a soft plum. It's a mid-season plum. It's a soft plum. It's an excellent plum. It's been around for a long time. Um, but its real value, I think, is in its ability to pollinize. Besides making really good soft fruit, plum plums, it is a great pollinizer for a lot of the pluots. So if you're growing or thinking about growing pluots, that Santa Rosa plum can be a really good one. So anyway, uh, this individual goes on to say, do I need two of these Santa Rosa plum fruit trees to get fruit or one tree is enough? Well, in our climate, in uh, Mojave Desert, uh, it's self-fertile. You don't need to plant another one. You might get a higher crop. You might get a higher amount of fruit by having a pollinizer tree nearby and having bees present to to help in the pollination process. But generally speaking, you'll get plenty of fruit if uh, you just have a Santa Rosa plum and uh, no other plums around it. But its real value, like I said, is... Uh, is its pollinizer ability with uh, the many of the different pluots. Just remember that when you're planting uh, any kind of a fruit tree and you're planting it in desert soil, remember to add amendments to that soil, especially if you're in the Mojave Desert where we have a very low percentage of organic matter in the soil. So you need to add that back. And I'd highly recommend looking at some form of compost to do it the gardener's black gold, as they call it. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, add about an equal volume of compost, volume now, not weight, but volume of the compost and the soil. Mix it well, thoroughly, and then use that for the backfill around the tree, and it should take off quite, quite nicely. Remember, on these trees, too, to stake them, uh, immobilize those roots. The purpose of staking is to immobilize roots. It's not to immobilize the tree. It's to keep those roots from moving around too much so they can get established in that first year. So make sure you do that. Keep the tree from moving around and you should have plenty of success with it. So that's about all there is for now. Uh, thanks for joining me and uh, have fun in desert horticulture. <music>